Oh God, we do take such joy that we can hear your word. May our hearts be drawn to you, such that we would be drawn to your word, that we would see it is more precious than fine gold. It's sweeter than the honey of the honeycomb, that it would be our greatest satisfaction to hear from you this morning, that we would be warned by your word, that we would know in keeping your word there's great reward. But again, none of these things can happen without the Spirit overcoming our hardness of heart. And so work. Let the words of, our, let the words of my mouth, O oh God, uh, be true and according with your word as we look at the book. And may the meditation of our hearts together be fully acceptable in your sight, O oh Lord, our rock and our Redeemer. We pray this for the glory of Christ who lives. And in his name we pray. Amen. Join me then. Matthew chapter 22, as we continue our series of expositions through this marvelous picture and book at the greatness of our Christ. Uh, And yet, he comes as the ultimate teacher to warn us, to warn us of the traps of false teaching, to warn us of the traps of being sucked into factions, factions that lead us away from the truth. And what we find is these traps are easy to fall into. It's easy to be swept up with the fervor and excitement of the crowd. I experienced it last night, being at a VCU basketball game. I enjoy sports. I really do. College basketball is one of my favorite sports to, to watch. But last night, as I was at the VCU basketball game, I'm not a particular fan of VCU or the team that they played, but I just like college basketball. So that was fun to be there. And actually, I'm not a particular fan of VCU basketball, despite them being the home team, is that they played the team I grew up following, the Kansas Jayhawks, in 2011, and the VCU beat them to go to the Final Four. And the VCU fan I was sitting next to reminded me of that by pointing out the banner hanging there uh, where VCU plays. And I will say, it was 10 years ago, but it still hurts. (laughs) I guess I'm a fanatic of sorts, right? Despite that, uh, as we're sitting there in the game cheering on the team, I'm just caught up in the crowd and in all the cheering. Before I know it, I'm finding myself getting hoarse, yelling for one of the teams as they scored. And I thought to myself, dude, I got to preach tomorrow. Be careful, right? It's so easy to just get caught up in the energy. It's contagious in the arena. That's true at sporting events. We've seen it to be true in politics over this last couple of years. It's true in religion. It's clear over moral issues and movements. It's easy to get caught up by this energy. This like, it seems like a river and a stream flowing and you just get in the stream and you're just coasting along with everybody else being excited or agitated about whatever is brought to mind. But here's the trouble. The trouble is, is that our excitement can easily outpace our concern for truth. We end up picking and choosing what we hear and listen to because it only will affirm the stream we're in. And we won't hear the truth when it confronts and goes against the stream. Actually, in all of the frenzy of joining the, the crowds, we can suddenly become very gullible very pliable and easily moved by any falsehood. And Jesus in the text this morning steps in to guard us from this, to guard us from these factious traps that we can so easily be pulled into, that we can be baited into. And he comes to cut through it all, to cut us back and put us back on the truth, to hold us to him. And so the word to us that we started last week and we see again is this, We need to learn from the Lord Jesus. That means you need to submit to what he says. You need to bow to his teaching. You need to take your own ideas and notions and put them under the throne of Christ. You need to learn from him, get low, and submit to his teaching. This is the only way you can avoid the factious traps that are pulling you into error and pulling you away from the truth. They're pulling you away from God. 
So what are the kind of traps we need to be on the lookout for? Where are we tempted? Where are we being baited into? What are the kind of errors that are trying to capture our hearts and our enthusiasm and capture us in unbelief? Well, the first trap we saw last week was this. It's the trap of religious nationalism. The, tra- the trap of religious nationalism. We saw that embodied with the Herodians in particular, this pro-Roman Jewish sect that was trying to establish a Jewish kingdom on earth with partnership with the Romans. That was a trap to be caught up in. The next trap we saw last week was the trap of theological liberalism embodied by the Sadducees. The Sadducees were folks, they were a Jewish group that said there is no resurrection. They have this kind of anti-supernaturalist bent. They also didn't receive all of God's word. So in this way, they pattern themselves after academic Christian so-called theological liberalism. And then that's another trap. But the next one we come to in the text in verses 34 through 40 is this. It's the trap of selfish, or you might say self-righteous, legalism. The trap of selfish legalism, verses 34 through 40. This is the next trap, the next thing that can bait us and pull us away from God, pull us away from faith to depend on ourselves. It pulls us away from the truth. And this is a trap that us, those who are at church on Sundays, this is a trap that the most spiritually earnest can so easily fall into. That's when our faith drifts from relying on God and it moves us to boast in ourselves, rely on ourselves, take pride in the religious things we do or have done. And this is where the Pharisees stood. Again, the Pharisees were this other group, this sect within Judaism. And they were the religious experts on the law, on God's law. But with their radical, you could say, devotion to the law, they depended on their own obedience to the law. In the words of Paul from the book of Romans, the legalist remains, he says, this is Romans 10, verse 3, the legalist is ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeks to establish his own righteousness. Trying to make oneself righteous before God by obeying the law. And that's really the threat of every religion that's out there. Every man-made religion, this is what it's about. It's about giving you rules and regulations so you can do things to whatever it is, get into God's favor, they, they give you a merit ladder to try and climb into heaven, to climb into God's love, or, or whatever they're holding out as the great carrot, to climb into bliss or peace or to find nirvana or to have paradise. It all rests on how good of a religious person you can be, whether it's how good of a Jew you can be or a Muslim you can be or a Buddhist you can be or a Mormon you can be or a so-called Christian. That is, this is not a threat that professing Christians are immune from. We know salvation is by grace alone, but we so easily set that aside, practically speaking, and live as though the law is our life. And so we do well to consider the danger signs that self-righteousness, legalism is encroaching in on our faith, tempting us away from Christ, that we are starting to be caught and entrapped by legalism. So then to turn to the text of Matthew, I want to just highlight where we've been. There in verse 15, we find a summary of the whole context in this way. The Jewish leaders, they're out to trap Jesus. They want to get Jesus out of the way. Verse 15 of Matthew 22. Then the Pharisees went and plotted how to entangle Jesus in his words. They couldn't just bump him off publicly. They had to frame him. They had to entrap him. They had to sway the crowds against him. So they were going to try and embarrass him or catch him in his words. And so, as we noted, it began with 
him, them tempting him first, trying to embarrass him to get him in trouble with the Romans, asking him this question about taxes. And then it was the Sadducees who were trying to expose Jesus as some kind of superstitious fool because he believes in the resurrection. But Jesus silenced them all as he kept pointing them back to the truth. And he really showed out or exposed that they are the ones caught in folly. They are the one entrapped. But after taking out, so to speak, two sects within Judaism, now the Pharisees regroup, and they do so on a matter of their particular expertise. They want to take Jesus onto their home court, so to speak, and their home court is how they understand the law. They think if they can position Jesus to try and make some judgment about the law, they got him, because nobody knows the law better than they do, so they thought. Verse 34 now, of where our text really begins. But when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together. And one of them, a lawyer, asked Jesus a question to test him. Again, this is not an honest question. They're not people learning from Jesus. They are testing him. And how might they test him about the law? Well, it's really with this question. Among the many, many, many laws in God's word, O great teacher, tell us the best one. What's the most important one? the one we must have above all others. Verse 35. And one of them, a lawyer, asked Jesus a question to test him. Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And perhaps that's better translated. Which is the greatest commandment in the law? Tell us the supreme command, the chief command, the one that we cannot ignore. And this is a tough question. Read through the God's law. There's a lot of commands in there. The Jewish scholars of the time had counted some 613 different commands that God gave to his people in the law. That's a whole lot to remember. How are you supposed to live that out? Can't we prioritize? Can we try and summarize some of this? And I think that's a good approach. That might be a good question. So how is that a trap then? Well, remember, it might be a fine question if you're really ready to learn from Jesus. But we know this lawyer is not out to learn from Jesus. He's trying to expose him, entrap him, discredit him. How could that be? Well, let's say Jesus picks any answer, finds any verse. He might upset some of the other schools of rabbinic thought in Judaism. Again, this is maybe going to create an uproar because Jesus didn't choose that group's pet verse. Or perhaps Jesus, by picking some command in particular, they might be able to then accuse him of undercutting other very important commands in the law. For example, let's say Jesus said the Sabbath was the most important law and command. Well, then they might immediately object and say, well, are you telling me then worship and sacrifice aren't important, Jesus? You know, these kind of games. But our Lord cuts through it all because he cuts to the very heart of the law. And in so doing, he even exposes our own legalistic hearts. Well, what's the command, Jesus? What's the greatest one? He gives the answer in verse 37. And Jesus said to him, here it is, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. And this is a quote. This is a verse the the Pharisees would be very familiar with. It's found in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 5. And of course, that's right after Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4, which verse 4 is the great confession of faith of the Old Testament. It's the Shema of Judaism. It is that command or that word, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, Yahweh our God is one. 
And since he is the only true God, here's the implication. Here's the command that follows. You need to love him. And you need to love him with all that you are, all of your being, with all that you have. You need to love him with everything because he is the only God. This is worship, to love the Lord your God alone and with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. The Lord God, as the only God, you see, is due, is owed it all. Jesus says in our text, that's the greatest and first command. Now, I just want to note two things about that. For ourselves, you just have to then ask this morning, is that what the Lord receives from you? You're all in every aspect of who you are. Does he receive your best? All of your heart, all of your soul, or is it more like part of your soul, part of your heart? Sunday morning of my mind. Because you see, Jesus, our God, he's not, you can tell from this command, he's not a tack on. He's not an add-on. He's not a certain section of your calendar or on your daily planner. He's the very pages you write your calendar on. He is your life. You don't fit him in. He reigns over it with all that you are. No one else is worth all that you have or is do that. So where in the very heart of you, the mind, the soul, where is Jesus' second rank? Because he's worthy of the best, the, all of it. Why? Because he is God. And that's what worship means, is to ascribe worth to someone. And, and in this case, we're to ascribe the ultimate worth. We're supposed to hold him in the ultimate esteem and in our heart and in our mind, the way we think about him, the way we think about his word, the way we think about one another and in view of him. There's nothing else, no one else we can love more or be more devoted to. With that, you hear this. This is the other note to mention. Do you see it? That love is worship. That's the great command. You worship what you love, and you love the thing, the one you worship. And only we see here, our love and then our devotion, our worship, our ascribing worth to him, it has to be supreme, unmatched, unparalleled, because he is. And so then to stop and ask, what do I love most? What is the thing that I desire most and have to have? Is it a person? Is it another thing that you long for, you covet? You're thinking, okay, if I could just have this thing, then I would be happy, then I'd have satisfaction. Maybe it's your look. Maybe it's your appearance. That's the thing you have to have. It's your esteem in other people's eyes. Or maybe the thing you must have, it's pleasure, it's security, it's peace. Which one of those things has captured you? What do you love most? And in case you're having a hard time seeing that this morning, let me give you a little test if you can't pinpoint it. Let me ask you this. What is that thing when you don't get it or you know you never will get it or it gets taken away? What is that thing that makes you so easily angry, anxious, agitated, or depressed? Whatever that thing is, that's the thing you worship. That's what you love most. And understand, anything but God will disappoint you if you put that kind of 
reliance on him or devotion to it or love to it. It will fail you. It's not designed of all creation or what can come from your imagination. There's nothing there that can hold up your strongest desires. You were made for God. No shoulders are big enough to bear the weight of your total devotion and satisfaction and allegiance. You were made for that to be in the God who does not disappoint. Now, back to our text. As I noted, he was asked, what's the greatest command? And he gives the answer, love the Lord your God and with everything that you are. And these experts in the law, the Pharisees, I don't think they would have disagreed with him. I think they might have had other pet verses that they might have leaned on and so forth. But I don't think Jesus' answer here is controversial. I think they would have said, ah, that's a good point. They'd be hard-pressed to disagree. But here's the genius of Jesus' response, is that namely, he doesn't end it. He doesn't just leave it there. He was asked, okay, Jesus, what's the first and greatest command? But he can't give just one. Verse 39, he wasn't asked what's the second one, but he'll tell you what it is anyway. Verse 39, and a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Again, they didn't ask for a second, but Jesus says, as you even think about the commands of God, understand these have to go together. See, Deuteronomy 6, love the Lord, goes with Leviticus 19, love your neighbor. Now, what binds these two commands from Deuteronomy and Leviticus? What binds these two commands from the Old Testament? What binds them together? What makes them the same or so similar? It's not the object. The object's very different. Love the Lord, the supreme object of all devotion. And this one is love your neighbor, very different. It's not the object, but what makes them alike? It's the action. And what's the action that binds them? What puts these two commands together? It is love. The command to love binds and ties them together. And so then by connecting them, what is Jesus saying about our worship and our love to God? He's saying this. If it's not accompanied by a love for others, you cannot even say you love God. If you cannot love those made in his image even as much as you might love yourself or give attention to yourself, then you can't even actually try and say you love God. And to miss this connection is the very trap of selfish legalism. The connection between these two commands. A genuine love for God will be accompanied by a real concern, a love for others. That is true worship. We're back to our text in Matthew. Note how Jesus wraps this all up in verse 40. He says this, On these two commands, love God, love neighbor, depend or hang all the law and the prophets. And there are two aspects to this. First, you really can organize all the commands of God into these two categories, love God and love your neighbor. So for example, think about the Ten Commandments that were given in Exodus chapter 20. That's really the beginning of the giving of the law. And from there, Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers, and then the rehearsal in Deuteronomy, 
spell out all of those commands, but they were first summarized by what's called the Ten. And so the Ten Commandments are a good summary of the law, but they are even divided into halves. So the first half, it zeroes in on worship. And even the first one, that you shall have no other gods is the command. And it goes on, not to make any graven images, not to take the Lord's name in vain, and to keep the Sabbath day holy for worship. Those can all hang on the God peg. Loving God. And then the rest of the Ten Commands can hang on the principle of love your neighbor. Like honor your parents, don't murder, don't commit adultery, don't steal, don't lie, and don't covet your neighbor's stuff. The whole law can be summarized Not just by the ten, though, and here's Jesus' point. You can summarize it by these two commands. And this is the very heart, then, of all of God's law. And it is love God and love your neighbor. And right at the center is the command, love. It all holds together. The whole law hangs on love. And again, to miss this connection is the very trap of selfish, self-focused worship and legalism. As it says in the scriptures, you become like what you worship. If you really love God, you really worship God, if you really adore God because you've seen his goodness in the gospel to you, you will be good and merciful like him, which will mean you will love others. But if you are selfish, self-focused, you have yet to encounter his love. You then have yet to encounter and really worship him. But it's interesting, summarizing this, you see that God's law teaches you so you can really love. That's what the, and to be clear, we're talking about the Old Testament law. You know, the the part of your Bible that many of us don't read very much. But that is all about love, Jesus is saying. And maybe you wonder, well, how is that? Because I've tried to read that before. You know, you get to Leviticus in your annual Bible reading plan and you go, this is about love. I'm going to the New Testament, okay? What's going on here? Well, first get this. The law, again, we're talking the Old Testament law here, teaches us how to love others practically. The law teaches us about love. In the first place, it teaches us to love others very practically. This is precisely what the law did for Israel. It embodied in very specifics how to love. You want to know what love looks like? You want to know what justice looks like? Go read Leviticus and Deuteronomy. Seriously. That's why God gave it to Israel. And there you'll see plenty of laws that spell out, well, here's what love looks like. Here's what justice for your neighbor looks like. Here's what concern for others looks like. Here's what real equity looks like. It looks like these very specific things and measures. So you want to know how to love others, to love your neighbor as yourself? Go back to God's law and look. Now, keep, you must do so, but as you do so, keep this in mind. Those laws, and this is why we stumble in our annual reading plan in Leviticus, right? Those laws, we can't apply them just immediately to our own lives. Because those laws were given to a particular people, Israel, in a particular context, ancient Palestine, and in a particular covenant, relationship with God, called the Mosaic Covenant. That's not where we stand today. We are not Israel. We are the church. We are in modern America, in our case. And we are under a totally different covenant. We're in the new covenant. 
So you cannot just immediately take whatever Old Testament laws you find and go, oh, drop them right into your life. Because then we can never have cheeseburgers anymore because you can't um, eat a, a kid boiled in smothers milk according to Leviticus. Or at least that's how the Jews have applied it today. No, no, we can have cheeseburgers. Read the book of Acts. It's glorious. Amen. And why can we do that? Because we take account of, in part, the new covenant. What has happened? Jesus fulfilled the old covenant. He did what we could never do. And he died and took the curse that we should have had under the old covenant law. And now we live in a new covenant where we are shown mercy. Our sins are forgiven. This is a glorious word. And yet the God of the old covenant is still the God of the new covenant. Yet he deals with his people differently. So there's many principles about justice, about love, that have a particular context. But the principles that can lift from there, equity, righteousness, justice, can apply to our life. We just have to be careful about doing so. Nevertheless, there are plenty of principles. You can learn how to love if you go and look at the book of Leviticus or the book of Numbers or the book of Deuteronomy. But that's not the only way the law teaches us, namely even about love. Because here's the other way the law teaches us. Might it be the primary way even. The law teaches us about love because it shows us how far we fall of God's holy standard. And so then it shows us there must be a great and gracious loving God that can overcome all of those failures of ours. In this way, this is what the law does. It exposes our sin. It exposes our pride. It exposes our selfishness. That exposes then our need for mercy, our need for a savior. It points us, it leads us that you can't do this, Rick. You need someone to do it for you. You need a redeemer. That's what the law is crying out to us. This is what Paul says in Galatians chapter three, verse 24. He says this. So then Paul writes, the law was our guardian or guide until Christ came. And what was he doing? He was leading us to be justified by faith. The law was showing us you can't be justified, seen as righteous before God by what you do, by your works. You need to have it by faith that it's done for you. And you trust God that it's been done. That's what the gospel preaches. And that's what the law teaches and where it leads you. And so you see a faith-filled trust in Christ that looks at the law, casts you back on Christ all the more. To be righteous before God, not because you obey the law so well, not because you've memorized the law so well, not because you think you sing songs or worship to God or give so well, but because not of your works, but because of the work of Christ on the cross alone. This is the gospel. And it's the gracious truth that when we come to grips with it, what's it going to do? It's going to teach us to love a God that was more merciful than we could ever imagine. The law shows us how far we fall, and so then the law shows us the love of God's immense that can overcome failures like ours. May we not then fall into the trap of selfish legalism, but may we see his love through the law and love others like he's loved us. The next trap that we must avoid is the trap of self-assured egotism. Self-assured egotism, verses 41 to 46. Now, we're using all these isms. Maybe it's a good time to define one of them, like egotism. Merriam-Webster gives this definition for egotism. It's an, exag- excuse me, a, an exaggerated sense of self-importance. In other words, this is the ism of pride. That's what we're dealing with here. Our Cambridge Dictionary puts it this way. 
egotism would be thinking only about yourself and considering yourself better and more important than other people. It's a temptation for all of us to have this inflated view of ourselves that we're pretty awesome. We get a big head. And it's a temptation for any of us as opposed to, or especially when we're kind of good at something. And then people tell you about it, or you get known for it, or you imagine you're good at something, and you start to believe all of the praise and the words, and your head gets big. You start to think you're pretty great or awesome. And the Pharisees had taken that bait when it came to their knowledge about God, supposedly, and knowledge of the scriptures. They were very proud, arrogant, about all they knew they thought about the promises of God. And in particular, just to evidence it in one interchange, I want to look at a passage in John's gospel. Here, the Pharisees had sent some guys to go meet Jesus and trap him or arrest him. And the guys came back to the Pharisees, and they seemed to be believing in Jesus. And the Pharisees are beside themselves. What do you mean? We, we sent you off to catch them, and now you're coming back and you're telling us no one talks like Jesus, as if that's a good thing? And here's what the Pharisees say. It, just hear the arrogance of their response. The Pharisees answered them. This is John 7, verses 47 through 49. The Pharisees answered them, have you also been deceived? Have any of the authorities or Pharisees believed in him? But this crowd that does not know the law is accursed. What have they said? Oh, only the accursed people believe in him. Only the cursed and not wise like us in the scriptures would be tempted and swayed by this speaker from Nazareth. See, the Pharisees prided themselves in being the gatekeepers of spiritual knowledge. And they used such pride, or that's what the pride that clouded their own minds to the truth, so they discredited Jesus. That means they wouldn't listen to him. Their judgment was too good. They knew he must not be right. And in all of this, Jesus poses a very simple question from a familiar scripture, and all of their scholarly pride bursts in a moment. You know, they've been trying to trap him with questions. And now Jesus turns the tables and asks them a simple question. And it begins with a very simple question that they would all know the answer to. Look at verse 41. Now, while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them a question, saying, what do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? And they said to him, hmm, the son of David. This is basic. This is Old Testament. This is 101. He asked them about the Christ. He asked them about the Messiah. He asked them about who the promised king would be, whose son, whose line would he come from. And they knew the answer. David, of course. We're all waiting for a Davidic king to come to save us, to be the Messiah. And why was that? Well, that's because of the promises given in 2 Samuel 7. God promised King David that one of David's own sons, is how it reads, or that means one of his descendants, somebody who literally comes from his line, one of those would be the Messiah, would be the Christ, would be the forever promised king to save his people. And so ever since 2 Samuel 7, God's people have been looking and waiting, well, who's the Messiah going to be? Is this the king? Is this the forever king that will finally come and save us? But they were always looking down the stream of David's lineage. And so again, verse 42, what do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he, Jesus asked. And they said to him, oh, the son of David. And so with the question, 
Jesus set the trap. They give the answer, son of David, and the trap is now sprung and they're caught. Verse 43. And he said to them, hmm, how is it then that David in the spirit calls him Lord, saying, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. Now, first, we have to grapple with how this question would be heard by them in this context, because it's different than our own. They had a great, far greater respect for their fathers, for their forefathers, for those that went before them. And so in this context, in the ancient context here in Israel, to have a father bow himself in homage to his son, that would never, ever, ever happen. Fatherhood itself, age, seniority, respect for the aged, all of those point as reasons in this ancient culture why a father would never see his son as lord over him, even if his son was technically king. You understand? The son might be king in Israel, but he would still listen to his father. He would still submit to his father. And yet, that being their culture, Jesus then just poses a question. You know, that's curious, isn't it, fellas? Why would then David call his son Lord? Hmm. Why would David do that? Seems that he does bow to his son. What's going on? Well, and he proves the point by quoting from Psalm 110. We find it quoted there in verse 44. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. First off, just notice that this was no accident as Jesus quotes it, and he's highlighting that for them. David didn't misspeak or exaggerate something here. No, from verse 43, we see that David spoke by the Spirit. He was under the Spirit's perfect revelation. I mean, this is Psalm 110 in the Holy Inspired Scriptures, right? So this is God's word coming through David. So it's very true, very accurate. David didn't misspeak. But what did David hear God say? Well, it's captured first by that expression, the Lord said to my Lord. Now, first reading, I would confess, I think it's kind of confusing. We have a lot of lords going on here. Who's talking about who? It's like, who's on first, right? Well, who's the Lord? What are we dealing with? Well, to make better sense of it, I think it's best to peek at the psalm itself. So if you want to do that, turn back in your Bible to Psalm 110. Or you can look up here. Uh, I have a quote from that we see from Psalm 110 on the screen behind me. And I've put, I've put the text of Psalm 110 verse 1 there, but not from the English Standard Version we, we preach from, but this is from the new Legacy Standard Bible. That's a nice way to bring it to your attention if you're not aware. Uh, this is a new Bible translation that's being put out by John MacArthur and the Master's Seminary faculty. And it's a, what it is, the Legacy Standard Bible. It's a helpful update of the New American Standard Bible. We used to use that when you preached here. Many of you still read from the New American Standard. It's a great and faithful translation. Well, this is a good, helpful, minor update to the NAS. And it's called the Legacy Standard. And you'll find it reads very much like the NAS in many places, at least thus far what I've seen. Uh, but one noticeable difference it makes in the Old Testament is this, is that they routinely translate or transliterate God's name as it would be heard or pronounced as Yahweh. 
See, there's God, and that's a category of divine being. But then God has a particular name. As your name is Jack or John, God's name is Yahweh. That's how he revealed himself to Israel, his people, as the redeeming and covenant-keeping God. And so most of our English Bibles, like the ESV I have here, reads in verse 1 of Psalm 110, The Lord, in all caps, to represent Yahweh, God's name, says to my Lord. But the legacy standard, what they've done, instead of using that convention of the Lord in all caps, they just use God's actual name as it's written in the Hebrew, Yahweh. And so in a verse like this in particular, where you have Yahweh's and Lord's and Adonai's and all caps and low caps, I think it makes it a little bit easier to see what the Hebrew, the original thing that David's wrote, is actually saying. So what's going on? So now we have, and using the legacy behind me here, Yahweh, so that's God in his name, the Lord on all caps in some of your Bibles, Yahweh says to my Lord, sit in my right hand until I put your enemies as a footstool to your feet. And so now with this established, I think we can try to identify who's speaking and what's going on. So first we have to answer, who is the one speaking? Well, the superscript of the Psalm says the Psalm of David, and Jesus says David's writing. So David is recording. He's the one who's making the quotes and the marks within, right? So David's the one writing. And what does he say? Well, David tells us that he heard Yahweh, the Lord God, say something. And what did Yahweh say? Well, he said something to David's Lord, his master, the one he bows and submits to. Well, who is that? Well, and here it is. It's the one to whom is told, sit in my right hand until I put your enemies as a footstool for your feet. Which means this one who is David's Lord, he is a reigning king, isn't he? That he sits at God's right hand in such a way that all of his enemies are subjected to him. He rules and reigns over them all. That ruling language, that kingdom language, that king language... That would immediately go in your mind. Oh, that's talking about the Messiah. The Messiah is the one who's going to rule over all the kingdoms and all the enemies are going to submit to him. And the Jews at that time all knew that. They would go to Psalm 110 and say, oh yeah, this is about the Messiah. So you'd have no objections there. But then that does create this little problem with their theology that Jesus just so modestly points out, doesn't he? Verse 45, back to Matthew's text. If then David calls him Lord, how is he to be his son? This doesn't seem to work with your theology, boys. There's apparently something really going wrong here. These great scholars, these memorizers of God's word, they're so devoted to the law of God, yet this is something they never seemed to consider or could ever explain, and so maybe didn't want to. Something doesn't fit and work for them. It doesn't make sense that the Messiah, who would come from David's line, that David would actually submit to that guy. That doesn't make any sense for them. And so Jesus has, just on the face of it, understand, he has exposed something that these supposed experts thought they knew everything about, but they don't. And they have no answer for this. Jesus poses, the, poses this question, and look at their response in verse 46. Back to Matthew 22, Matthew twenty two forty six. And no one was able to answer him a word, nor from that day did anyone dare to ask him any more questions. He stumped them. 
They didn't know what to say. They didn't have an answer. Again, he exposed their ignorance of what they thought they were masters of. And so the point is, in part, is this. This reveals that whatever objections they have to Jesus, guess what? Those objections are not driven by truth. Those objections to Jesus are not driven by the word of God. Those objections are driven by fear. They're driven by folly. They're driven by unbelief. And those things are so strong in their minds, they won't even hear the truth because it confronts their way of thinking. You see what's going on? Jesus' grips on the truth is revealed that they're actually entrapped in their system, in their faction. They're trapped in their set of interpretations so they'll no longer hear the doctrines of God because they have security in the doctrines of men. They can't listen to God's truth anymore. So instead of being exposed to maybe being a fool or maybe being arrogant or not having all the answers and then going to submitting to Jesus to learn from him, they'd rather establish themselves in their folly. They'd rather get rid of Jesus than have him asking any silly more questions, you see. Whatever scripture says, who cares? He disagrees with us. We know he must be wrong. And it's that kind of arrogant egotism about their spiritual knowledge, so-called, that's a very dangerous trap to people to think, I already have all the answers. No matter what God's word says, you see. What goes on is you create this wall in your life and around your heart. That you, you don't let God's word in anymore. You don't let God's word confront you or or rock your apple cart or change the way you think because you think you've got it already all nipped and tucked. Jesus, I don't want any more truth. I just want what I want, what I got. And here's the very terrifying thing. For the very religious like these Pharisees, that you put up that wall so God's word won't confront you even though you're around it and you are in it and you hear it preached and you read it every morning all the time, but you've put up this wall because you think you have all the answers. Your heart's no longer open to hear, to submit, to learn, to be confronted, to be changed. You're too comfortable, you're too secure in your error. And such that, like these Pharisees, You have no answer when God's truth comes knocking on your life. Now, though, what's the particular truth that Jesus is teaching them? What's the thing that they didn't understand that they couldn't answer? What is the answer? Because, again, he asked them the question, verse 45, If then David calls him Lord, how is he his son? What's the answer? How can this be? Was this, David's Lord is his son for sure, but he cannot merely be his son. You understand? Somehow, he needs to be both David's son to fulfill the promises about the Messiah and the reign and the king, but he needs to be something more than merely his son. And the great reformer Martin Luther got it exactly right, and he said it best with this. Sit, says God to him, not at my feet, not over my head, but next to me, as high as I sit. And then sitting next to God, what else is that being also but 
God himself, Luther said, and he's got it exactly right. That's what Psalm 110 has been saying the whole time. Why would David bow to this one who is his Lord? Because yes, he's the Messiah as promised, but he's more than this. He has God himself come as a man to be the Messiah, you see. What's the puzzle piece that answers all of these questions about the promises of God? It's the incarnation that God became a man to fulfill the promises and the law that we could never fulfill. And do you see what happens then? This is the glory of the gospel. Because salvation has nothing to do with you and what you do. It's all to do with the God who in love comes and he fulfills and he completes the law. This is the glory of Christmas, isn't it? This is why we celebrate. We can't save ourselves. And God had set it up in a way, get this, that a human had to be the savior. It was by no mistake in God's plan and promises that the Messiah was to be a man from David's literal line. That's the way God set it up. See, we were ruined eternally by one man, Adam. And so then God purposed it would be one man, the seed of the woman, who would then conquer Satan and win for humanity. Man was undone, but man will win. And so we were looking, well, who's the good man who's going to win for us? And so then we're following potential Messiah and potential Savior after the next. Maybe he will be the one. Maybe he's going to be the one. There was David. It really looked like him. But then he commits adultery and he's a murderer. And then it's Solomon, his son. Maybe it's going to be him. But then he's a great idolater. And then we go to the next and you go to the next. And the list goes on. Savior after potential Savior. And they all fall and fall short because they all are corrupted by sin. And then what do you get? Well, with man, this is impossible, right? And yet the promises say it has to come by a man. How does this work? How can any man save us unless, of course, he is God who became man? That's what Christmas is all about, isn't it? That's precisely how. That is the genius of God, that he would have all of these promises come to pass. It's when a God Savior is born. The seed of the woman, the seed of Abraham, the seed of David's line, as all of the promises demanded was fulfilled by the one who was said, sit at my right hand, I'll make your enemies a footstool for your feet, for I have won, because I defeated death and sin at the cross. For he is God, very God, he's the son of David, he is God's son, come down from heaven. And this is the mystery, you can say the mystery of Christmas, but it's the mystery that confounds us. It's the mystery that surprises us. It's the mystery that humbles us, that blows our minds, that takes all of the the scholars and all that they know and throws it through the shredder. I don't think you quite yet understand this, God. And it also throws in the shredder our, our thoughts of him, our preconceived notions, especially before the law. The terror that the law brings, the holiness of God. And some of that is absolutely true, you know, no, no question. And yet, in these promises, what do we discover about this God? That he indeed is the Lord, the Lord of God, merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding steadfast love. Because we see through the incarnation what has gone on. These are the truths that lead us to love him. For he came down from heaven to those who rebuffed him and those who sinned against him. He came down from heaven and he came to teach us. He came to show us what God is like. 
But then he also came to be rejected by us. He came to be mocked by us, rebuffed by us, ignored by us, torn by us, beaten by us, killed by us, crucified by us. So he could then save us, those who have fallen in traps of such factious lies. And to redeem us, sending so the rope and tie us and pull us out into the truth of his mercy. But you see, if the salvation is all of God, all of the plan of God, all of the work of God, that even the one man could do it was actually God in man, does that not provide the ultimate insult to our egotism, to our pride? That God not only had to come down from heaven to tell us, he had to come down from heaven to, for the cross to save us. Matthew 20, verse 28. Again, the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. And how did he do that? But to give his life as a ransom for many. For you, if you believe in him. That's the glory of Christmas. The glory of our God on full display. If we will lay down our pride, lay down our egotism, our selfishness, and we'll confess our fallenness, our sins, and believe we can learn from Jesus' feet that he is indeed a savior of sinners because he's a God of love. So don't oppose him. Don't try and hold on to your own ways, but submit and learn from him that there's a grace greater than you knew and it reigns through the risen son of God. He is the only one to save ruined sinners. And if we can come to grips with that in the law, we see our fallenness, but by it we see a love that is greater than all of our sin. That's a love that will lead us to love him with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And that we can love others like he's loved us. Let's pray that he would do that in our hearts as we come to this table. And as I pray, I'm going to ask those who have been designated to distribute the elements to come forward. Let's pray together. Indeed, O oh God, we ask and confess, would you be merciful to us? We confess we are great sinners, but we confess by the work of the cross that you are the great Savior, that we can have full redemption, full forgiveness. And in this love that we know, may we be reminded of it, the great lengths you took to redeem. And again, as evidence of your love, and so may we love others like you've loved us. That is with humility. With humility before the cross. Humble us even now, but assure us in your loves as we partake together. It's in Christ's name we pray.